0: Hello and welcome to the tech for climate podcast. I'm Guillaume, your host, and each week I'm fortunate to share with you stories from climate tech founders, investors, and corporations sharing their unique insights into this fast-moving industry. Eventually, like me, you will learn, discover, and get inspired by those unique men and women who are contributing to the fight against climate change, and I hope it will help you to take a step in this formidable movement. So before we start, I just want to share a few words about us, as this podcast is just the tip of the iceberg of what we do at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech movement. Our mission is to accelerate capital deployment towards climate tech founders, allowing them to focus on scaling their solutions. How do we do that? Every day, we help founders access to resources and connections and gain the visibility they need to expand their growth. To do this, a number of ways with a membership platform a Slack group with a growing number of founders investors and experts from around the world and recently we went one step further with a matching services to connect founders with top climate tech investors keep in mind that we are able to do all of this thanks to the support of our listeners and our members please like and subscribe Share one episode with a friend, join our community, and if you haven't already done so, make a small donation to support our work. It really means the world to us. And now, enjoy the show! Hi everyone! During this episode of our Founder Series, we sat down with Marcus Lehmann, who has developed with his team a unique way to harness the power of waves. Waves are the largest unused renewable resource in the world with the great benefits of being more energy dense, stable, and predictable than other forms of renewable energy. Marcus' startup CalWave intends to equip coastal communities with clean, reliable, and local energy while keeping our planet healthy. It was clear from speaking with Marcus that co-founding CalWave was a natural progression of what had been a continuous interest in both building things and riding the waves. From early on, Marcus was already building robotic boats and self-propelled surface vessels, despite growing up in Munich, Germany. After studying mechanical engineering with a focus on entrepreneurship, Marcus came to UC Berkeley in California for his master's thesis, where he was introduced to the technology that would lead him to co-found Galway. In the show, energy dependency is a particularly important discussion right now with the war raging in Ukraine, and it was fascinating to talk with Marcus about how this solution has potential to mitigate the energy dependency of so many coastal communities, particularly island nations. In doing so, we talked about the value chain of renewable energy, how that affects the adoption of renewables, and how CalWave is making waves in the energy market. the second part of the show, Marcus shares his tips for fundraising and getting out of your lab. He also gives some recommendations on work-life balance and books that helped him get there. Marcus, welcome to the show. Hi, Marcus. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. I'm super happy to have you here with us today. I believe it's going to be a great opportunity to hear your story and learn more about your exciting journey with Wave, which is on a mission to unlock the vast and steady carbon free power from ocean waves at scale. So welcome to the show. Hi. Yeah. Uh, thanks for
1: having me. Excited to be on.
0: So early morning for you in California. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time with us. So before we start, uh, if you could tell the, uh, the audience, uh, you know, give us a 30-second uh, introduction about CalWave.
1: Yeah, CalWave is a technology developer to provide solutions that can harness ocean wave power. Ocean wave power is the largest unused renewable resource in the world, has great benefits being more energy dense and stable and predictable. And yeah, we don't really have a commercial solution yet. And so our um, team is developing um, a system, um, a power plant, similar to let's say an offshore wind turbine that can capture ocean waves to produce electricity in different power levels. Um, And yeah, it's been really exciting year for us um, the last (laughs) um, 2022.
0: So let's start from the top before we, we dig into, uh, into CalWave uh, or we serve the, the wave, uh, if I can use that expression. Uh, let's start from the top. I, I'd like to understand a little bit more about like, uh, you uh, as, a, as a person. I mean, what, what, what's your story and, and, and background? I mean, what are you passionate about? And uh, what do you love to do besides uh, uh, building uh, CalWave? As I always ask, like, who is Marcus?
1: Yeah, personally, I always like to build things. Interestingly, my family background didn't really had an engineering um, exposure. My, my dad was a, a professor in IP. So I, I, I knew, learned about the value of intellectual property early on um, growing up with him and um, certainly had a more of a e- exposure to a, a traditional academic kind of household. But personally, I just always like to build things, be outside. Um, I, I was really fortunate to grow up with a, a nice big garden and just naturally gravitated towards um, building things. And um, yeah, then um, grew up sailing, um, grew up in Munich in Germany. And yeah, my dad took me sailing. So always had exposure to water. And yeah, actually, even as a um high schooler, a uh, pre-high schooler um, started building some boat type you know self-propelled autonomous surface vessels if you want so very uh, rudimentary but i think now some of these um, we see actually going to the market and yeah also build a robotic ship so always yeah had some exposure to um yeah building things and then um yeah, for my high school final thesis, I had to, um, yeah, build a, oh, sorry, we had to write a final thesis. And, you know, there were just a bunch of options there in topics. And I really didn't want to do a very theoretical, you know, deep nuclear science kind of uh, topic. And there was just one topic that said, yeah, build and demonstrate something. And I just picked that without really knowing exactly what it is. And then it, it turned out to be a A solar race car so there was a institute close to munich that was more of a training institute to help to develop workforce for you know the the solar industry and very from the ground up that's from the installers to the actual project planners and designers um, of projects not so much the actual solar panels and so he just ran this student competition to raise awareness and yeah, that was my final thesis build a solar race car that was fully powered by the sun and nothing else no batteries allowed or anything and so through that i got exposure to the renewable energy industry pretty early on that was in 2006 and then as part of that thesis really learned about climate change the ipcc the the state of the world and somehow gravitated towards this because i saw that's the right thing to do going forward interestingly then later i enrolled into mechanical engineering in munich to keep myself broad you know back then i debated between going into fusion versus uh, renewable engineering said why not do mechanical engineering then i can help with both depending on whether demand is going to be higher going forward and interestingly the the big lecture hall in uh, Munich in mechanical engineering is called uh, Rudolf, Rudolf Diesel Hall. And so personally, I, I grew up, I guess, yeah, a five-minute drive from the, the private home of diesel. And nowadays, I find myself actually going around cleaning or trying to clean up what the diesel engine has created. You know, a lot of communities were hoping or in planning to help to become off diesel fuel I always say it's now the the duty of our generation to really clean up um, the you know all the emissions caused by previous um, technologies that have been brought to market without understanding the global implications back then um, but I think there's also you know for future generations there is a part of engineering ethics where you really want to think about what are the implications of the technology you're building and that there's a responsibility included into it. For us, the responsibility certainly is to make sure we're not affecting wildlife, marine life specifically, and we're extremely careful um, yeah, during our design period to make sure that um, it's it's been done in a safe manner.
0: So th- thank you for sharing uh, all of those uh, different uh, pieces of, uh, of of your life um, prior launching uh, launching Cal Waves. Uh, would you maybe like uh, share with us like one or two uh, pieces of um, you know experience uh, during that old journey in Germany uh, at in high school, and then maybe maybe it was during also like your your time your childhood in your in your garden. Uh, I don't know, but. What are the one or two pieces of uh, experience that in a way uh, maybe is the move to, to California that gave you this edge uh, to to start uh, to start the company and be a, be an entrepreneur as well
1: yeah, that's a good question um, I didn't really you know growing up in Munich it's it's not Silicon Valley where you see that as a career path and especially back then it wasn't as uh, present as it's here in, in the bay area and um, yeah my dad was a a guest lecturer at uc santa clara so i've been to san francisco the first time when i was 11 and just personally really liked the area here and um, but growing up and then going to school i didn't even know the term entrepreneurship as i've seen um, here and there you know people you know that these are more like the forts 100 years ago started companies or you know BMW or Siemens someone started that 100 years ago but they're not around the corner or that they're not a role model you can relate to as a, as a young student but I think yeah I always had good ideas and was passionate about projects you know I had these construction projects with friends where we just build a skateboard ramp or these kind of things and that always you know to the point where we sneaked out at night to finish our project so i just or we built like snow castles and the like so i always loved these kind of team construction projects naturally gravitated towards them and then during my time in mechanical engineering i had more and more exposure also i did an exchange in hong kong at the business school there just getting out a little bit to see the world. And they had a lot of entrepreneurship classes. And there was a, a venture capitalist from Silicon Valley that taught one class. And that was extremely impactful. He just let us read sections of books, of entrepreneurship books, and summarize them and share with the class. And that in, in the end of the semester, essentially, the entire class essentially read a digest of 50 entrepreneurship books or so. And um, that was. Yeah, extremely um, powerful. That there are even companies now. I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, some of these business books. You can summarize the the core essence of the the message in, into a couple sentences if you're doing it right. And so that's what he already um, did back then. And then, yeah, um, participated in a couple of business plan competitions there, and just started to learn more about entrepreneurship. And then i met a gentleman there also from munich um, that did exchange at the same time and then he told me about this program in munich called um yeah it was a an honors degree in technology management kind of a, a startup mba um, together between TU munich and lmu A pretty selective program they would only take 20 people per year that have that kind of personal interest and drive and um, Yeah, then I applied to that program and got accepted for the last two years of my master's. And that certainly gave me full on um, exposure to the startup world. You know, the curriculum was really designed to first do a a market study. Back then we wrote a trend report on um, home IoT, especially for elderly um, and had actually some pretty good ideas that now I see being funded um, years later, um, yeah, similar kind of concepts um, for essentially allowing elderly to stay at home longer with the support of IOT and telemedicine. And then um, second part was to actually, um, it's called managing product development, really going through a product development cycle. So our team worked on Um, e-mobility so a smart solution to facilitate a floating car sharing fleet of electric mobility um, for urban um, areas so that was pretty interesting and then the last one we actually consulted with the startup in Berlin so that was a full-on IT startup and, and we just helped them for a semester and then through that program um, because um, yeah, part of it was to yeah, go abroad and do exchange. Um, it's one of the four semesters and a friend of mine got accepted to Berkeley and that was like one of the most popular destinations there. And I already ha- had done my exchange with Hong Kong. But then I said, hey, I'll just join because um, I really enjoyed that experience, international kind of um, environment and then reached out to um, professors in, in engineering in, in Berkeley. If I could write my master thesis with them because that was kind of the last step I needed for my other degree. And so that's really how it started. Um, and then this was really more of coincidence of faith if you want. So then I was just waiting um, for my visa to go on um, the trip to Berkeley about my master thesis and I kept reading It's pretty interesting also during my college time, the the two magazines I uh, was reading the most was MIT Technology Review and uh, the Business Journal, um, because we got that for free. And so I kind of saw both sides, uh, what's going on with the financial crisis back then in in 2009 onwards, and um, also new technologies. And so while I was waiting for my visa to get started in Berkeley, I read about this new concept that a professor from MIT had about a a submerged um, wave energy technology. And at the end of the article, I saw the names like, oh, wow, that's the professor that just um, accepted my my scholarship uh, proposal. And then in the beginning, he assigned me a more theoretical fluid dynamic kind of topic. Personally, I mean, my the focus in my master's was in systems engineering and energy systems, and so building a proof of concept um, for a new energy system was actually a better fit. And so, kind of halfway through my six months uh, scholar uh, visiting scholar um, appointment, yeah, I was able to convince him to let me work on the um, the the. original concept that then led to the technology that CalWave is um, commercializing today
0: so before we uh, we reveal too much about like the initial story that uh, you already started to uh, to unveil i would like to take a, a zoom out and thank you so much for sharing uh, more about uh, your your personal journey uh, Marcus. i'd like to take the, the zoom out um, as i as i mentioned and we discussed that prior to the interview uh, on the, the current uh, you know energy crisis using the the, the angle of um, angle of like renewable energy um, can you maybe you know, share what, um, some insights that, uh, that you have uh, and maybe data points regarding the, the fundamentals of, uh, of the current uh, energy crisis that we're uh, you know, going through now in Europe? And uh, I know per se that uh, the U.S. is also partially affected to that. Um, I mean, what are the, the, the fundamentals and, and the cause and the, the magnitude of it? Maybe you can remind our audience in terms of like, you know, uh, how consequent, like the the fossil fuel, uh, you know, primary source of of energy is still like, uh, you know, present uh, into uh, into the system today.
1: Yeah, I think a good starting point and and without you know, uh, engineering education, people often don't see these flow charts. It's a, it's called Senki diagram that really shows the flow of energy. So how much raw energy is being brought into um, a country and then how much is being used for heating versus for electricity. And so if we look at these diagrams and every country has its own flow chart there, but we also have a global flow chart. And so what we see there, this yeah, majority of our primary energy, I wanna say yeah, above 80% globally is um, still from fossil fuels that are finite and essentially a major contributor to climate change next to the CO2 emissions, um, just the entire production of uh, the entire value chain to get these from the resource to um, an end user uh, that ends up burning it. That also leads to high methane emissions that now are really, um, well, have been identified as a significant contributor, a very potent um, greenhouse gas that we have to be careful with um, going forward. And so the interesting angle is that, you know, in, in thermodynamics, you always draw a system boundary and then you can describe what is going into the system, what is going out of the system, what's happening inside the system. And that kind of thinking is really helpful. Mm, and what we're seeing, because our solution specifically can help island and island communities, and so essentially that's exactly what an island is. It's a, a defined a small boundary, and they're very they can measure well what's going in, what's going out, and so some of these islands, what we're seeing, they are you know one of the most popular tourist destinations in the world, but essentially they're plus minus zero. Yeah, so for for an island, the entire amount of money of um, yeah GDP they bring in from tourism, they then spend and goes out um, to imported fossil fuels. And if we look at you know nations by itself, they're no different than an island. They have their borders, and you have resources flowing in and flowing out. You know some of these, of course, have their own natural resources, but as I said, they're finite. They come with the environmental impact of mining them, and yeah, I think the COVID nineteen crisis really has amplified how connected the entire global economy is, and that includes, you know, shipping, um, yeah, coal and and fuels around, and now of course with the war in Ukraine, and that that entire crisis has amplified. But I think that's where people now realize that. Europe as a, you know, economic region imports the majority of their primary energy. And so what renewables enable next to really the, the lack of greenhouse gas emissions, um, if, if done right and built with sustainable power in the first place from an entire lifecycle emissions perspective, it allows the community to become independent from imports, from um, energy, um, yeah fossil imports and so for europe there is a great opportunity just having a, a large ocean front there um and i think the that has been um identified that this is yeah a significant um unused resource at the moment and and i think europe is still um, leading in terms of percentage per um, capita in offshore wind I think some other regions in Asia um, really take over at the moment in terms of total capacity of offshore wind. But we're seeing, you know, with the wind turbine being a very mature technology, now we can really start exploring um, the oceans, which are harder to access and of course, more complicated to build than an onshore wind turbine. Um, but yeah, we're still see- really seeing these becoming one of the fastest growing industries um, yeah in the renewable space in california and um, we just um, saw the auction of the offshore wind floating leases so that's been pretty exciting they yeah sold off uh, the bureau of ocean management here um, sold or leased off um, five areas for floating wind of about 100 million each was the auction in, in new york for example they had um you yeah, auction a couple years ago and you know the total price paid for these auctions was in the multiple billions that just shows how much value is in um, that pretty small comparably small ocean patch Um, and that's just with wind and you know um, we're now really advocating to or uh, um, raising awareness that there's more than just wind in there there's also um, wave power going through the same lease area and so we want to make sure that it's being utilized. Um, and in the long run, once the technology is is ready for, you know, similar maturity than a wind turbine, it will just become a natural, um, yeah, a logical natural um, transition to utilize all renewables in that um, yeah finite amount of ocean space that is, is very valuable to to even get least.
0: So taking taking a zoom uh, zoom out and, and we'll go a little bit deeper into the uh, into the, the ocean like opportunity uh, that the the waves and uh, actually like like the wind as you uh, you mentioned combined can can offer uh, in terms of the, the energy production but um, w- when you when you look at it like what is like today in terms of like this? And you mentioned that we are only close to around twenty percent of uh, the energy produced uh, coming from those uh, renewable energies uh, sources. When you when you look at it like like today, like what is according to you uh, what is blocking the development of these of those energy um, you know renewable energy uh, at at a larger scale? Uh, is it because in the past, like uh, policies has been put in place that are blocking that, or is it because the uh, the cheap uh, cost of, uh, of fossil fuel? I mean, and now we find ourselves in the in this corner uh, with uh, this energy crisis, where uh, we we start to realize that the dependency that uh, that we have is too high, and uh, and when everybody is friendly, everything goes uh, goes well, but then after that. Uh, we are uh, in in situation as a, as a crisis like like today. So, what is your take there? Like, what is like blocking it, and what are maybe the mistakes that we did in the past that we should change for the for the future?
1: Yeah, in general, and it's becoming a popular term as the energy transition. It's exactly from a transition from fossil based sources of generation to renewable, and others, or non fossil based and in general the utility more speaking about large scale infrastructure you know and that's just a space that takes time to transition that's nothing you can just upload uh, download a, a a software update or you know uninstall the one software and install the other one um it takes time and capital to implement these changes and then next to these these big power plants no, as we've seen when Germany, for example, um, you yeah, pulled out of the nuclear power plants. Mm, the companies that operated these came with pretty large claims because they built and finance these, you know, similar to if you buy a house, you get a mortgage and then you finance that house and then you pay that house off over 30 years. These large nuclear power plants, you know, cost multiple billions and takes the most modern A power plant um, for nuclear was built in Finland recently and I think it took 20 years or so from permitting to construction and then actually to go into operations. And I I forgot, I think it went over in cost by a factor 10 or so. So it took a long time and effort. You know, some people spent their careers, 20 years is a long time to build these power plants and then they are financed for many years. So they want to be paid off. So that's nothing, you know. There's uh, there there's some opportunity cost, but it's also very painful for the ones that build these to then just suddenly turn them off. And it's also, you know, in in soccer with the World Cup going on at the moment, we always say never change a winning team. It's also painful to change a system that works, you know, it it runs at the moment. And similar to, you know, a couple of thousand years ago. When we discovered as a as a race the fire, there was always one or two people that had to make sure the fire keeps burning um, and keep, keeps it on and so on. So I think similar to the utilities, the you know we, we had a, a power outage here the other day. Just that experience, we're so reliant on power in our modern society and, you know, their uh, safety and and health concerns for certain households that need medical or hospitals, you know, they're the most vulnerable and they have to keep their um, systems running. So there's really high stakes involved um, with power outages or the access to power. And that's why that's a very conservative industry that does not like to play around with things and just do trial and error. They really, I mean, they have a big responsibility, making sure um, the industry and the society has access to power and make sure that it never fails. And it's a different kind of, you know, in, in entrepreneurship, they're like the people that like to break things and, and um, try things to change um yeah, make these larger infrastructural changes um, over time.
0: So question in terms of like regulation, uh, and we cover a little bit like the the European side of it. Now, you heard about like, I mean, you're in California, uh, the Green New Deal, uh, and all of those uh, bills has been passed by the Biden administration. Do you see there that uh, we have, like, the concrete base to really, like, accelerate uh, the deployment at scale of those, uh, you know, renewable uh, energy sources? Um, Or we still see, like, there's maybe some, uh, uh, you know... um, Missing opportunities uh, that uh, should be, uh, you know, put in place to really uh, accelerate the, this deployment and gain this, uh, uh, you know, um, energy independency that uh, we all need uh, to achieve uh, as soon as possible. Uh, coupled by the fact that we need to decarbonize those uh, those um, uh, the the source of energy that uh, we are relying on.
1: Yeah, California is certainly always on the forefront of innovation and sustainability. And as a state, they've set a, a mandate to transition to 100 uh, percent clean energy, I want to say by 45, 2045. And so the clock is ticking. And yeah, they're certainly with the big infrastructure um, support packages, the IRA here in the U.S., things are really starting to gain momentum and a yeah, big unique part of this package is really the long-term ability to secure these um, yeah, support mechanisms. And, and as I said, you know, if you build these uh, renewable power plants, you want to be able to pay them off over many years, and that's the beauty of them that they're reliable. Once you install them and and operate them well, they just keep running, and so. You want to be able to pay off um, and finance these and and so having this long-term prospectus in um, as part of your financing um part of um yeah developing a project that really helps um, adoption and, and acceleration so um, from what i've heard that yes yeah, solar is certainly a big winner um, in this infrastructure package now being able to finance projects um very effectively with, you know, incentives that reduce or help to write off taxes on the capex. So the actual purchase of the equipment, but then also having um, production, um, PCTs production and tax credits. And yeah, so that's, um, overall the current, um, yeah, the current big package, but there were also other packages before, and the state itself has, um, support mechanisms the california energy commission has a, a program that you know, supports innovation in you know, all, all parts of the energy landscape from you know, managing the grid, software to storage, to new types of generation, to EV adoption, you know, or using EVs as a virtual battery to feed power back into the grid, and so on. So they're they're really trying to attack it on all fronts wherever we use fossil at the moment, and it's it's going to take some time. But um, overall, I think the the general atmosphere is certainly positive that we're moving in the right direction, and it's it's gaining momentum. My main concern is just that, you know, it's that kind of S-curve where in the beginning you accelerate and you get a lot of momentum, but then it's going to plateau and then it's going to take a really long time. Let's just take what we've seen with the percentage of renewables that, you know, getting us from from 0 to 5% is probably the easiest um, part and getting us from 95% renewables to 100% is gonna be the very hardest, that long tail end. And then there's everything in between and we don't know exactly how hard is it gonna to be to go from 40 to 50, from 50 to 70% renewables and so on. Well, we know it's gonna be harder and harder. And so um, with you know that being uh, energy and, and, and uh, this, these large systems being also, quite political. Main concern is that you know we we might have a lot of optimism for the first twenty, the first fifty percent, and then it's just going to plateau and very or stagnate. Um, so I think that's going to be important also for the next generations to make sure we keep up that momentum and keep pushing, even if things get harder and harder.
0: So don't you think that? Um, and you heard the, the news recently about uh, this. Uh positive uh, mass of energy that has been produced out of the, the fusion uh, nuclear uh, you know system uh, do you think that um Speaking about these difficulties of reaching like the ninety nine or ninety five percent of uh, uh, renewable energy uh, source within the as, as a, a primary source of of energy, uh, solution like uh, fusion, uh, or even like f- uh, nuclear fission, as we uh, as we know today, uh, has an important role to uh, to play. Uh, and what's your what's your take on this uh, uh, fusion uh, excitement that uh, that we hear right now?
1: Yeah, certainly very excited. As said, I've been following the topic since high school um, closely. I went to school in, in Garching, north of Munich. They, they, they had a, a modeled uh, Tokamak reactor out in front of the Max Planck Institute there. So Every time I went lunch, I saw the magnetic coil um, <laughs> designed for fusion reactors. And um, I think from a climate change perspective, we need everything. We're running out of time and we don't even have time or capacity to debate between this or that of course there are finite resources limited amount of funding and so on but yeah it's exciting to see that you know we're attacking it from all directions Mm. the reality of fusion or fission power plant as i pointed out is that these are big facilities and they will take time to get permitted and built and so on and so difference between fission and fusion is yeah you don't have to pay for the fuel and you don't have to worry about um the waste besides the radiated um your walls and so on of a um, fusion power plant but fundamentally it will i don't see a big difference in the systems engineering side of things you still have to build a power plant you still have to turn that heat into steam into electricity and distribute it on a you know a gigawatt level and so, you know, it's, it's very exciting to see the progress there, but it's also not just because we've now, or let's say we find the solution, it's still going to take 10, 20 years to build all these power plants. And then also not every region will have the money and the ability to actually operate them. If you just go around the world and see who is actually able to afford and operate um, fission reactors at the moment, and then, you know, you can draw the analogy and say, yeah, fission is an is a old and somewhat mature technology um, for fusion being newer, it's probably going to be more expensive in the beginning and not everyone's going to be able to afford it. But it certainly, it could help to produce, you know, huge excess electricity that then can be turned into hydrogen and so on. The other way around, you know, there are certain regions I studied under the CTO of one of the leading hydro companies in the world, and there's some regions in, um, yeah, not so friendly areas at the moment. They have huge um, historic dams for um, hydro power. Their plan strategy for infrastructure, they build huge hydro dams in the middle of nowhere where no people live. So technically, yeah, you could already go there and start produce hydrogen um, and you don't have to wait till your um, fusion reactor is, is up and running.
0: Thank you so much for sharing all of those uh, very interesting uh, insights. So, now let's go deeper into uh, into CalWave. I mean, you already unfolded a little bit like the, the story behind it. You're arriving at uh, at Berkeley University, meeting this uh, the professor, and then starting halfway through your thesis, uh, uh, collaborating on the uh, on on the initial um, prototype. Uh, perhaps I can uh, I can call it like that of, uh, of Cal Wave. So. Maybe can you mention and remind us like, I mean, which gap did you guys identify at first that initially led to the the, the current version of of CalWave? And in a way, why did CalWave have to exist?
1: Yeah. So from a technical perspective, the inception was really um, a geological phenomenon. It's in that sense, people have often heard of biomimicry where you know, inspired by a certain flight of bird has inspired Da Vinci to develop the first kind of airplane co- concepts. In our case, it was really um, geomimicry, and um, where people observed a certain mud region that is very effective in extracting wave energy. So it's really a a, um, yeah, a membrane that has a certain physical property that just acts as a shock absorber and just absorbs waves very effectively. And so Professor Alam from from teflab uc berkeley um, yeah investigated exactly that or tried to describe it mathematically for his phd and the spring damper model or let's say a power plant a renewable power plant is, is exactly the same as a spring damper model where the damper is your your generator and so just discretizing that um, principle to spring damper model then became evident yeah you could start using that configuration to produce power and so then that was from a systems engineering perspective a really interesting challenge to take a mathematical concept and actually turn that into 3D and a physical product that meets all the demands of the entire life cycle from you know being fabricated to transported to installed to maintained to connected to the grid to then decommissioned at the end of the life cycle so that's that makes it you know from a engineering perspective um, the mathematical model had one single objective is produce as much power as possible versus from a product perspective you have a chain of requirements that are sometimes conflicting so it becomes significantly more complex to find a package between all of these and it's a very very interesting challenge but uh, certainly not straightforward and so our team really yeah has taken all this into account and also iterated based on the initial concept so we've we've made some uh, yeah some very important learnings and improvements to the initial concept that now um, arrives at a product that is really um, ready to be deployed commercially comparable to, let's say, an offshore wind farm.
0: So I think it's a great opportunity for you to uh, kind of like walk us through the the process. I mean, how how does it work? I mean, what are the different uh, components necessary? I mean, how much energy are you able to to produce which uh, uh, each unit that you already have in place today as a, you know, and which scale or uh, how far can you go in terms of like uh, production uh, in itself uh, as per unit in terms of energy production, I mean. Tell us a bit more like, you know, how long does it take to, to put, uh, to manufacture or to build one of those units uh, as of today? I mean, if you can help us to and uh, the audience to visualize, um, you know, the, the, the whole product and how the, the magic works. I mean, what, what's your uh, what's your secret sauce there?
1: Yeah, so our technology we arrived at is um, <clears throat> a submerged pressure differential system. That means we are operating underwater at all times. and. There are a lot of side benefits to it, but the primary drivers for us to operate submerged was really to arrive at the lowest cost of energy. And to get there, there are really two main drivers. One is you you need as high efficiency performance as possible, turning as much wave power into electricity as possible. The second part of the equation, equally important, is how expensive is it? so keep your costs low to actually buy and fabricate the unit but then also to maintain it um so and they can you know you can build a perfect in space they have very um, hard time maintaining things and sending people so they build very expensive systems that last and, and don't fail the other way around you can build extremely cheap systems that need a lot of maintenance, like your, you know, cheap headphones, you might just replace them every half a year and so on. And so, you know, you can balance between CapEx and OpEx. And that's exactly an optimization um, challenge um, going forward that, yeah, you want to the, the sum of both of these over the lifetime of uh, power plant, 20, 30 years, you want to arrive at the lowest possible expense um, CapEx plus OpEx together. And so we've been optimizing for both of these from the very beginning. So I think that's really unique about our generation of um, developers now um, developing uh, wave power is that one, we're really taking that entire lifecycle from a systems engineering perspective um, right from the beginning, not just at the very end. Once everything is ready and then you start to think about cost, but right on the on the white paper level, we've iterated um, to arrive at the lowest possible cost. And at the same time, we have tools now available that even five, 10 years ago, no one really had at their disposal or only very, you know, for offshore oil and gas, these are billion dollar revenue projects and platforms that gives you the respective um, development budget um, and the engineering tools. But with open source and the, the yeah uh, decreasing cost of computation we were able to run pretty advanced um, fluids simulations optimization even on the the Berkeley lab supercomputer during our time at Cyclotune road and um, so that's been really exciting now that, that we can integrate and leverage all these advanced simulation tools now and then of course cost of sensors also have decreased so just from high volume production of smartphones the the cost of motion sensors for example has gone down significantly and that we actually benefit from from all these um, complementary advancements Um, as often and you know for technological breakthroughs it's pretty interesting if you go back and say hey why was the first airplane really produced in in a large volume in you know, the, the 19th century, why not the 18th century? We had everything or w- what was missing. And often it's several things coming together that, you know, just being able to fabricate steel in a certain way. Or it's it's quite interesting if you um, check it back and see, hey, why was this not introduced a century earlier? And then see what things had to come together then to make it happen. Um, that's yeah, just a personal um, hobby of mine, too. <laughs> Go back and, and
0: and question these things. Um, so in terms of uh, of capacities, like I mean, how much energy each unit is able to uh, to produce? Uh, the one that you have uh, tested uh, for for many months now, uh, outside of uh, on the coast of uh, San Diego, I believe. Um, how much energy have, have you been able to, to produce and what's the the next version of that the next iteration of it and maybe that's what you what did you learn during that uh, uh real life uh, you know uh, submerged at sea uh, uh test and, uh, and 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 experience in itself
1: Yeah, so cow if we're planning to offer two initial product lines to market 100 kilowatt and a 800 kilowatt um, unit and um yeah, they are scalable like a wind turbine. So, you know, once the, the most optimum architecture of a wind turbine was um, yeah, developed, then now we saw bigger and bigger turbines. So even for offshore wind, the first offshore wind farms in, um, yeah, in Scandinavia, they were um, actually built with 800 kilowatt wind turbines. And now we're seeing 15 megawatt turbines being um, offered to the market. And so, but fundamentally, they stayed the same turbines, three blades, uh, horizontal um, upwind. And so similar, our technology is also scalable. And with the pilot in San Diego, the the Department of Energy um, supported, um, funded this project. And in that funding call we won in 2017, there were certain constraints to it, um, one that you know, because of the budget constraints of this initial contract, they they set a certain limit to a certain size. So what we've built um, for San Diego was a scaled version of our eight hundred kilowatt kind of megawatt class system. And yeah, the objectives were really to go through all the, um, as as pointed out, all the elements of um, a field trial that leads to then project financing and de risking. Um, so just going through. Um, The list here, of course, performance, but then also installation, um, maintenance, um, our protocols, um, the autonomy. So our um, controller that operated the system autonomously Um, initially, the goal was to operate for six months. And then we had um, really high reliability, um, no intervention for that initial six months period. So we extended um, to 10 months. So that was um, really exciting for the team as well. Um, a slight surprise, we had planned, budgeted, uh, at least two interventions to you know recover the system, fix something, redeploy it, um, first time being in, uh, in a hard to access environment. But yeah, that was really not needed. And then we extended to 10 months and with that, um, we're able um, yeah, to collect more data. We, technically, we could have operated longer, but f- more for project management specific reasons, we yeah, then had to um, stop operating after 10 months and recover it. Um, but overall, that was extremely exciting. And I think it's also a result of um, one, the quality of tools we've built that you know, our drivetrain, we tested in a laboratory controlled environment pretty close to the actual real world conditions and so that ability you know in the ocean you don't want to do trial and error just put out things uh, and see until it breaks and then go and fix it it's more like you do the engineering right and then it works a little bit like you know space where still you know some of the earlier rockets still didn't didn't make it as intended but in the best case, your engineering and your modeling in advance is good enough or is sufficient to, to then not having to um, yeah, recover or fix things in the field. And so for us, the trial was really more of a validation of the quality of the tools, simulation, and forecast models we've developed, as well as that um, controlled dry testing of the, the bench. And um, so that's been extremely exciting. And now we're upscaling the system to a 100 kilowatt unit and planning to deploy that in PuckWave in Oregon. So that's a new 20 megawatt grid connected test site, um, also funded by the, the Department of Energy.
0: So how do you select uh, the the area that are suitable to, uh, to install, uh, you know, those uh, different uh, modules and and units? I mean, what is required to, to make it like uh, work and and, and feasible? I mean, and how many units uh, do you plan in the future to be able to, uh, you know, install all together at the same, uh, same site?
1: Yeah. So there are different parts or different life stages of a technology. One is really to demonstrate it and get it um, certified um, with a new technology. And then where do you actually install them, operate them for 20 years? So Puckwave is certainly a a demonstration site that is suitable for all kinds of technologies. Um, NREL, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, they have a wind test area in Boulder, for example, where they just test different turbines and usually for these, you actually want a location that has more on the extreme side of conditions because with that you can really de-risk the technology. you know you know 50 or the, the largest storm in 50 years is, is pretty large there um, compared to you know um, other locations in the world. So it's a really good proving ground for the technology. For commercial rollout, we can be at areas where for example, an offshore wind farm could not go. Our system operates fully submerged. That means we can be much closer to shore offshore wind often gets um, pushed back uh, because of the visual impact um, it causes and so yeah, being able to uh, be submerged we can be much closer to the end user um, on the coastlines at the same time we can still co-locate with an offshore wind farm in the long run you know once let's say the megawatt class units are ready for serious production then um, yeah, we can design wind and wave farms from scratch together in an optimum, you know, economic optimum. In the beginning of the industry, I see the, the benefits more to co-locate them in a different, uh, same area, but in their own designated regions, but share the same electrical export infrastructure. And that's where wave power actually has a big advantage because we're using water and not air so we only take about 10 percent of the same land to arrive at the same let's say 100 megawatts um, farm density compared to an uh, offshore wind farm so there is some benefits especially in in space where uh, you have space constraints and as we've seen now in these auctions that the space is not coming for free um although it's it appears to be unused oceanfront um for (laughs) Yeah, from the outside but uh, this actually is actually still pretty valuable um, as we've seen now um so yeah that's the the big benefits and yeah I missed to answer your question on the production volume or system you know I worked at a car factory um before um, and we produce the vehicle every 64 seconds or so. So it just depends on, you. and this is one factory, so there's one uh, model car, for example, you see all around the world, and it comes out of one single factory. It's, sometimes it's actually impressive that, you know, to Japan and saw the car there, and it's like, oh, I know exactly the factory where this car was being produced. And so that's the power of you know industrial manufacturing for wind turbines especially the larger ones they are not being produced like a car in a, in a fully robotic factory although a lot of robotic technology is being used for welding and so on it's more serious in volume production um but to, you know to answer your question i don't see any difference between our system and a wind turbine um, so yeah, we can be produced in the same volume as a wind turbine, similar technology, actually the, the same components that go into a wind turbine, similar fabrication, um, logistics, transportation needed. Potentially our system might even be easier to transport cause it floats. It's like a ship. Um, so, you know, people build um, yeah, ships in serious uh, as well. So at the right location, um, things can come together. So our vision is really to manufacture the whole in in series uh, similar to a, a ship um, kind of a standardized ship production and then we bring in the motor of the ship um, but more it's in our case more a generator we bring that in as um, already pre-assembled package and then they they both are brought together um, similar to you know the. The ship manufacturers—they're not assembling their, uh, their engines themselves. They buy them from an engine manufacturers. So that's really how we see um, the, the commercial rollout in large volume. Then in the coming years.
0: So maybe that's a the good uh, good moment to kind of like try to understand a little bit. Like, what is the, the business model that uh, you guys want to uh, to put in place? Are we are you going more to a licensing model or? Uh, production heavy, uh, collaborating with like shipyard and in uh, manufacturer, and and what are the maybe if you can touch you know share with us a little bit like what is the uh, economics uh, that uh, or the future economics that you see for uh, Calwave?
1: Yeah, it's a good question on the business model. As of now, we're planning to become equipment provider and after sales service provider, so no different than um, wind turbine OEM original equipment manufacturer. And um, yeah, we might it, then it's always an economic question with make or buy that will come down to volume, that in the beginning at a lower volume, you might still contract things out with an EPC. and then as you um, increase the volume, while still, of course making sure the quality, especially for offshore, quality and reliability will be our core um, you know differentiator. And that's something we want to keep close to our chest to make sure it meets the the quality um, standards we need to um, ensure the reliability and then um, yeah the essentially payback is um, secured at all times um, in terms of economics um, that that was part of um yeah, my work at Cyclotune road that activate is really to investigate path to cost reduction and so what we're seeing fundamentally in wind and solar, that the costs go down exponential. Um, you always see these straight lines on a logarithmic chart. So exponential cost declines. And they're driven by two factors: economies of scale in wind, meaning building bigger wind turbines. If you you know the labor to install a one megawatt wind turbine versus a three megawatt wind turbine is pretty close. to is the same, but you get three times the power um, out of a larger turbine. So that's one. And then often people mix up economies of scale and economies of mass production. That's then mass production. Second factor, it's really the Wright's law of using industrialization. You know that's why um, cars are so cheap now, because we um, you know divided the steps and and we produce them in factories and and introduced um, automation as part of the production process. So these are two phenomena. And then next to that, for renewable energy projects. The bigger the projects the cheaper the cost because you're amortizing you're distributing the cost of some of the upfront engineering over a larger farm and so it really depends on you know what size of unit what production volume what size of farm are we building Um, but what we're seeing is that yeah with about um, 500 megawatt accumulated production we expect to be then cost competitive with offshore wind um, power purchase agreements um, that we're seeing at the moment
0: so, couple of more questions um, before we, we, we close this uh, this first part of the interview. Uh, I'd like to understand a little bit like then in terms of like production, like uh, you guys are gonna produce them uh, yourself. Like, do you? I mean, what are the challenges behind that uh, that production, that logistic uh, chain that uh, that you see, and how do you? Uh, uh, defend, uh, you know, yourself. Are you, uh, how defensible is uh, is the the, the CalWave, uh, you know, I would say hardware uh, and 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 R and D and technology behind that?
1: Yeah, maybe I start with the second half of the questions. We're actually a software company, so our core IP is these high quality um, model simulation tools as well as the controls we've developed. It's also our trade secret next to the patents we have on the actual architecture. So in that sense, we're um, yeah well defensible. It's also the time it takes to you know actually um, arrive at hardware is always it looks harder than software from the outside, but because of the time it takes to figure out all these things and, and the lead times of parts and so on you also have the same time as you know um, as defense so um um, certainly the, the the more the further you are the more defensible it becomes and um yeah i said the controls and the software is really a key aspect and then going forward of course our understanding of, you know, the big data, if you have many machines in the field, you see patterns for offshore predictive maintenance, remote inspection will be extremely important topics. And that's what we're seeing in the wind industry that often the banks that finance wind farms, they want to make sure the OEM that has built the wind turbine also services them because they see, you know, the patterns of failure and often lead to the lowest cost of maintenance than if, if the maintenance is done by the same company that built the turbines and has data on all their machines in the field. Mm. And uh, remind me what was the first part of your question.
0: <laughs> in in terms of uh, in terms of production like what are the you know the the, the challenges that uh, you see to put in place the, the initial like production line and how long would it take? like what are the next steps in in, in that sense.
1: Yeah, certainly commercial risk, you know, we've uh, the, the main focus for us the last couple of years was on technical risk, removing, um, getting the technology to a bankable state. And then now going forward, the focus um, will shift more towards um, yeah, removing commercial risk, manufacturing and, and producing these kind of systems. It's something that has been done before uh, everywhere in the world, I said most likely anyone that can build a wind turbine will be able with, with our guidance to build um, our X-Wave um, technology. And so, mm, yeah, it, it will really come down to um, optimizing for cost and logistics, where you know, um, are we manufacturing the whole, the bigger pieces close to the actual deployment side, the customer side, mm, what we're seeing in offshore wind in the US now, that a lot of companies that bring in the expertise from offshore wind uh, originally from Europe they now start to build factories in in the US on the East Coast so in terms of challenges we we actually see that more as an opportunity for workforce development and job creation um, and I think the same jobs that currently now build the, the offshore wind turbines in the east and west coast they will be able to also fabricate and then install operate the same firms that that install and or finance a wind park and, and operate them they will be able to transfer their expertise and operate a wave park Um. so overall we're extremely excited and, and see that more as an opportunity as well for um, yeah, the communities to create new jobs.
0: So, how can the the listeners of uh, the, the show, uh, experts, investors, uh, uh, entrepreneurs, can uh, can help you? And what's next for uh, for Calwave?
1: Yeah, we're always looking for talent. At the moment, we're looking for senior electrical engineer, someone that has had his hands on higher power systems and. Um, yeah, also a couple of other open positions, planning to grow more. So um, yeah, please um, subscribe on cowwave.energy um, also for future opportunities. And then from a investor in partnership um, side, yeah, we're always keen on um, yeah starting the conversation um, about partnerships there um, as we kind of now advance towards commercial rollout. And yeah, would love to get in touch with anyone interested. At the same time, being a small team. We're always keen on um, yeah, advancing our advisory board. We're extremely grateful for the advisors that has, have been helping us um, along the way and um, also planning to grow that and complement that exactly in the areas where um, yeah, we have challenges ahead. Um, it's really important to find the right experts that have done that before and I'm really keen on yeah, starting the conversations there as well.
0: So last question on my side, like what's your personal opinion on the on the climate crisis? I mean, as I always ask, like, are we doomed? What would you say to people who are, you know, feeling demoralized by all the visible consequences that uh, we have today?
1: I think if you certainly zoom out and look at the big picture, it looks daunting. Personally, growing up in the Alps, I had that experience arriving at A pretty challenging climb for the first time myself and then I just looked at this and say what we have to go up there all the way and you know it looks super scary and then I had like a racing heart completely overwhelmed And then you just start going and you go one step at a time and at the end, then it's actually not that scary if you're just focusing on the next step and making sure you're secured and you don't fall. And so I think, yeah, arriving at the big picture and it's good that people wake up and arrive at the big picture, but now it's more... mm, getting to work and picking up where the the most impactful first steps are and and then all together going one step at a time as quickly as we can so certainly you know what's a little scary is the accelerating um, nature of climate change that we haven't really fully grasped yet and no one can tell i mean what i can tell you being in the ocean space is that we're extremely lucky without without the ocean, we would certainly be doomed because uh, the ocean acts as a huge heat sink as a big thermal battery. Water is a really good way of storing energy as as you have in your basement. And so I think what we don't have fully understood yet is by heating the ocean, what the long-term effects were and and how much time the ocean essentially saved us um, by being a big heat sink. But that will arrive on shore soon, as we're seeing with the amplified extreme um, weather events everywhere. And so, yeah, I think mm, we should not waste any more time um, and debates on irrelevant things. That's kind of what personally makes me upset at times. It's like, even if we're not exactly sure, but just the case that it could, you, you know, you're essentially gambling on the existency of our biodiversity it's like yeah it might not be that bad or it might actually be really bad but just because there is a chance it might end up being really bad that itself like you know we're playing it pretty risky in the sense by saying oh yeah we're just hoping it's not going to be that bad um and yeah, I think from an insurance perspective, and that's why it's interesting, the people that actually run mathematical models on these are the reinsurances, so the insurances, that insure insurances. And so they've, you know, there's Munich Re, for example, where I, um, I went to school and just walked by their office any other day. And they've seen in their model that it's not looking good, and that's why, themselves, they started to invest in, in climate solutions. Um, so, you know, that being an emotional topic, I think it's a good time to rely on the people that actually run mathematical and statistical models um, and, and guide our decisions um, with, with their help.
0: Any question that uh, should I should have asked I uh, didn't for this first part of uh, the interview?
1: I think, yeah, we, no, that was a pretty um, wholesome conversation. I think we covered
0: <laughs> Thank you so much, Marcus, for uh, your time, your incredible insights, all the hard work that you uh, that you do to uh, to build this uh, better and cleaner world uh, with a uh, cleaner energy, uh, 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 unleashing the, the power of waves. So uh, thank you so much for uh, all of uh, what you're doing uh, for everybody.
1: No, thanks for the <laughs> exciting conversation. Really enjoyed. Uh, Thanks again
0: for joining us on the Tech for Climate podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. Stay tuned next week for more climate tech insights. In the meantime, head on over to our webpage at startupbasecamp.org where we have lots more insights and resources for anyone wanting to get involved in climate tech. If you find our resources useful, please consider donating to support our small self-funded team. Don't forget to subscribe and share with our friends. And see you next time.